hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. And now as we return to Luke's gospel, I'd ask you to take your copy of God's word and turn with me to Luke chapter 21. Luke chapter 21, you may remember if you were here last week or if you uh, caught the sermon online from a distance, uh, that we are now in the portion that's uh, most often known as the Olivet Discourse. In Luke's gospel, it's a little bit different than it's recorded in Matthew and in Mark, and we're not going to spend time uh, minutely comparing the parallel passages. That, uh, that can be worthwhile sometimes, but Luke, I think, has his own uh, specific focus in what he's writing, and we're going to stick with Luke today, and we're going to see the way that he presents this uh, oration of Christ, this last sermon in the temple uh, before, his, uh, before his crucifixion and resurrection. Uh, this passage is notoriously difficult, uh, and Pastor Andrew gave you a heads up on some of the difficulties that are in this passage last week. Uh, what we're going to see today, we've broken it into several sections. If you were here last week or, or heard the sermon, you know that Pastor Andrew spoke about this first section where Jesus was preparing his people for persecution and also when he was preparing them for the opportunity that they would have to give witness to the gospel amidst a world that hates them. Well, today we're going to look at uh, some of these great and awful days of the Lord. We're going to look at uh, verses 20 uh, through 28, and we're going to see really two things here, uh, and you'll see the way the ESV divides that for us, the destruction of Jerusalem and the coming of the Son of Man and we'll consider what these both mean and what they might have to do with one another. And Lord willing, next week we will come again uh, and we will hear Jesus telling us to be ready, to stay awake, to be sober-minded and ready for that day. And so we come uh, to verse 20 of Luke chapter 21. That's on page 881 if you have most ESVs. And when we're finished today, I want to encourage you to keep your Bible open because we're going to be referring to this text as we go through, and that's going to be very important for you to be able to see it in front of you. Before we read this text together, uh, please join me, and we'll seek the Lord again in prayer and seek his blessing in our study. O oh, gracious and righteous Lord, we pray for eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to understand and turn that you might heal us. Thank you for this word, and uh, give us humility as we approach it. We pray that we would not imagine ourselves as masters over your word, but that you, by your word, would overmaster us, draw us to Christ, especially on some of these issues where good, faithful Christians may disagree in their interpretation. Uh, give us humility with one another. Give us charity. Give us unity in the faith as we all await that great and glorious day when our redemption will draw near. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Hear now God's word as we find it in Luke chapter 21, beginning to read in verse 20. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. 
Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains and let those who are inside the city depart and let not those who are out in the country enter it. For these are days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Alas for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. For there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. And they will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among the nations, all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And there will be signs and sun and moon and stars and on the earth distress of nations and perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves, people fainting with fear and foreboding of what is coming upon the world. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. Thus far the reading of God's holy and inerrant word, may he add a blessing as we study it together today. In uh, near the center of old Rome stands a massive stone monument known as the Arch of Titus. The style is similar to the Arc de Triomphe in Paris. Uh, It is a freestanding behemoth and it was set up to commemorate the victory uh, over Titus who at the time was a general and went on to become a Caesar, uh, the victory of Titus over the Jews in A.D. 70. It was constructed shortly after the death of Titus, about 11 years after the fall of Jerusalem. And throughout the years, throughout the the centuries, much of the arch has been ruined and then reconstructed. But on the inside of the arch are uh, two original stone sculptures, carvings, uh, reliefs inside the monument that tell the story of victory. And on the northern wall, Titus himself is featured. Uh, He is featured as uh, the man of triumph. He rides in his gilded chariot pulled by four white horses uh, as the populace hails him and welcomes him back into Rome and he is crowned from heaven by the goddess Victory. And on the other side, on the south-facing wall, is a relief showing scores of Roman soldiers carrying spoils of war taken from the temple. Golden trumpets and tables bronze ash pans and, uh, and sacrificial uh, paraphernalia. Prominent in the center on the shoulders of four men being carried upon poles uh, is a large seven-branched menorah, the very golden lampstand that was plundered from the holy place in the temple. Christ, in these verses, uh, is calling his disciples to look ahead to that event, He's telling them to believe that it's going to happen according to his word. We have an advantage over the disciples who heard this. We have the clarity of hindsight. We have the Arch of Titus standing for 1,900 years as a white marble witness that it happened exactly as Jesus said it would. We have this reminder set in stone that time and judgment are in the hand of our Savior. But if judgment is in the hand of Christ, then so too is redemption. 
And this passage that we've read foretells two separate events. There is a destruction that God's people needed to flee, and there is a deliverance in which God's people can still hope. This first destruction has already happened, and the final deliverance is yet to occur. And even though we don't have the hindsight of history, Christ's words are no less true in verse 27 than they were in verse 24. And so that means this passage is more than just a historical curiosity. This passage is a scaffold for your faith. This passage is a foundation for, you, for your hope as you look and long to see the words that Jesus was telling us here come true. Just as surely as destruction came to Jerusalem, so also will redemption come for the people of God. And our Savior wants His people to be ready for that day. I mentioned that the passage divides pretty neatly into two sections. Verses 20 to 24 first details the destruction of God's city. And then verses 25 to 28 detail uh, the redemption of God's people. And we're going to look at it in that way. Now in verse 20, Jesus returns to the question that was asked by the disciples back in verse 7. You recall uh, from last week that uh, Jesus foretold that all of the magnificent stones of the temple would be torn down, not a single one would be left upon another, and the disciples asked Jesus when, and how will we know? When will this occur, and what will be the signs that it's happening? And Jesus spent a while first telling them what are the signs that it's not happening, or what are not the signs that it's happening, however you'd uh, prefer me to phrase it. He speaks of famines and pestilence and earthquake and war and tumult and, of course, of the persecution and the false prophets attempting to lead people astray. And all of those, Jesus says, are not really the sign. Verse 9, Jesus said, these things must first take place, but the end will not be at once. And then finally, in verse 20, he returns to answer their question, this is the sign of the end but when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. This isn't the first time uh, that Jesus spoke about the desolation of Jerusalem. This is a pretty consistent theme in his preaching, actually. You might remember that when Jesus entered into the, the temple, into the city in chapter 19, Jesus wept over the city because of the destruction that was coming upon it. He wept because they did not recognize the day of their visitation of the Lord. You remember perhaps in chapter 13 that Jesus declared the house of Zion desolate because the people refused to be gathered to Christ as their Savior the way that chicks would be gathered under the wing of a mother hen. This is a consistent theme in Jesus' preaching, that if the Jewish nation rejects Christ as their Savior, they will bear the wrath of God. Their capital will be destroyed. Their temple will be demolished. Their leadership will be dissolved. Their people will be dispersed among the nations like chaff scattered in the wind into the minds of most Jewish people in this day, that was an impossibility. It was unthinkable. It's not that they weren't aware of the power of Rome. It's not that they were ignorant of the way that Rome stereotypically steamrolled other nations into submission. They knew about that. It's not even that they forgot their history with God. 
The Lord in the Old Testament had done this before. He had destroyed the temple and the mountain. He had sent his people away into exile because of the sin of their idolatry. They knew what the Lord was capable of. And so it's not exactly that they thought God could not deliver Jerusalem into the hands of their enemies. It's simply that they assured themselves that he would not. They like to remind themselves, they imagined that they were not like those sinful people who were chastised by God in the past. They were not like the idolaters who mingled the worship of Yahweh in the very temple with worship of Baal and Ashtaroth. They like to imagine that they were not like those recalcitrant, stiff-necked people who came out of Egypt and refused to be led by the Lord. They like to imagine that they were not like the generations who came before who wanted nothing to do with what the prophets were telling them. In fact, you remember in Matthew chapter 23, the way that they comforted themselves, they said, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in the shedding of the blood of the prophets. They were saying, we're different than they were. We've got our act together. The Lord is for us, they were telling themselves, because we don't engage in the sins that those people used to commit. They believed that they were different. And the symbol of their difference was the temple. It was pure white marble and hammered gold. It was not tainted with the worship of paganism the way that it had once been. Gentiles and outsiders weren't even allowed into the courts upon pain of death. And so long as the temple was standing, so long as the sacrificial fires burned to Yahweh alone every morning and every evening, the people imagined that God would not, almost could not, forsake the place that was called by his name. Yet you remember that when Jesus entered the temple and he drove out the money changers, he let them know that what was happening was like a bad remake of an old movie. He came in and said that this place was supposed to be a house of prayer for all the nations, but the Jewish leadership had made it a den of robbers. And he was hearkening back to Jeremiah, of course, letting them know that they were the same people. They were doing the same things that Jeremiah talked about. Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 4 tells the people, Do not trust in deceptive words to no avail. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, they used to comfort themselves. And then he goes on, chapter 7, verse 8. Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you've not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we are delivered, only to go on doing all of these abominations. Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? They were exactly like those people, says Jesus. You've made it a den of robbers, and all the while they're patting themselves on the back and saying, we're doing far too well for the Lord to let this place become the threshing floor of the nations. And they were wrong. And there was desolation coming. There were days of vengeance approaching to fulfill all that was written. Things like Jeremiah 7, 
things like the other prophets that at one time were applied to the exile to Babylon and yet would have a greater fulfillment and a greater application to the destruction of Jerusalem. There are days coming where blessing itself will be turned into mourning. Pregnant women and nursing mothers will be pitied rather than envied because their suffering, their anguish will be magnified at least twofold when the city is besieged. There are days coming when the people of Jerusalem will fall by the sword and be led captive among all the nations. It's going to be Jewish exile all over again, and not a stone's going to be left upon another in the temple. And if you have a stomach for such things, you can read through Josephus' accounts. You can read all the gory details of the desolation. The Romans laid siege to Jerusalem in April of A.D. 70. It began just after the start of Passover, and that meant that the city, which was normally already overcrowded, was full to the gills with pilgrims. Sometime during the siege, there was infighting between the various parties and political groups uh, in Jerusalem, and it led to most of the food supplies for the entire city being burned. And what followed was a horrific five-month mass starvation. Josephus wrote that children and young people swollen from starvation roamed like phantoms through the marketplaces and collapsed wherever their doom overtook them. Kent Hughes says that the roofs were thronged with famished women with babes in arms and the alleys were thronged with corpses of the elderly and that Jerusalem could not hold and bury all of the bodies and so they were flung over the wall. When the walls were finally breached in late August, the Romans slaughtered the young and the feeble and the elderly without exception on the spot. And after they dealt with the leaders of the Jewish rebellion, they took every last living soul into captivity, not an inhabitant remained. And the temple was burned and the stones were torn down and the soldiers fought among themselves trying to reclaim the gold that had melted off of the walls of the Holy of Holies. It was total destruction. Vengeance with an Old Testament flavor. It was the kind of thing that the prophets used to warn the people about. It was the kind of thing that when the prophets would speak, the people would put their hands over their ears and say, I don't want to hear that, thank you very much. That has nothing to do with us. Tell us something nice. But before it happened, Jesus was warning them not to believe the deception that Jerusalem was unconquerable. So that when the armies began to gather around this city, they should get out and they should get away and they should get as far from Jerusalem as they possibly could. And that was something else that was unthinkable. That was not the way people normally acted in these days. In those days, if there was a threat of an attack, all the people in the country went into the cities that had walls. It was the only place that felt safe. But Jesus is suggesting that fleeing into Jerusalem is going to be like trying to stay dry by taking a dive in a pool. It simply will be impossible. And this was a call to faith. This was a call to heed Jesus' words. 
Because in order to do so, his people would have to trust him more than they trusted their own intuition. They'd have to listen to Jesus more than they listened to the leaders of the day who were putting their hands over their own eyes and saying, no, 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 everything will be fine. You come to the city. You come to the temple. It's called by the name of Yahweh. Nothing can possibly happen to us here. All you have to do is trust in the temple. And Jesus is telling them that whatever God has condemned will surely be destroyed. And he's warning them not to cling to the impressive things of this world that God has pronounced worthless. Dear believer, what worthless things that God has condemned are you clinging to? That's the message for the people. Believe Christ's words and turn from those things that will be destroyed. Now in the end, the only ones who escaped, mostly the only ones who escaped, were the Christians who, who listened to Jesus. Because in 66 AD, at the beginning of the revolt, when the armies were just at the very beginning stages of, of putting the, the pincer move on Jerusalem, as they were just beginning to muster forces, almost the entire Christian population fled from Jerusalem. And they crossed over the Jordan and into a Greek-held city that they named Pella. And there in Pella they grew and they thrived. And they set up a witness for the gospel that lasted long after Jerusalem was reduced to ash and rubble. Now, historically, that flight from Jerusalem marked the final separation between the Jewish nation and the Christian church. Up until the Jewish wars, uh, Christianity was mostly seen by most of the world, and, and most of the Jews, in fact, it was seen as merely an offshoot. One more sect within the sects like the Pharisees and, and the Sadducees and the followers of the way. But when the Christians left the city that God had condemned, it was a break with the Jewish identity for the Christian church. And this also was according to God's plan that Christ revealed. Because God's people were entering a new era. They were entering an era in which the temple and the city no longer occupied the central place of God's dealing with humanity. They're entering an era where the kingdom of God was no longer tied to an earthly capital. And that meant that, that untethered from Jerusalem and, and unbound from the confines of the Jewish people, the gospel would continue its spread into every tribe and tongue and nation and language. And so today, worship doesn't happen in one central location. It happens wherever God's children are gathered together in his name. And the sacrificial system was abolished and the Jewish priesthood was torn down and in their place remains only our great high priest who gave himself as a single sacrifice to perfect for all time those who are being sanctified in him. And so Jesus said the city would be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. That's the same note that ends Luke's second book, by the way. Until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. It happened about uh, ten years before the fall of Jerusalem in 60 AD when Paul arrived in Rome. And as he did, he began by preaching and speaking to the Jews who were there. And they all gathered around. The, the Jewish populace in Rome gathered to hear this new doctrine that Paul was preaching. 
And when he spoke to the gospel to them, Luke records, beginning in Acts chapter 28, verse 24. This is what he says, Acts chapter 28, verse 24, that some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. And disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, go to this people and say, you will indeed hear but never understand. You will indeed see but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed. Lest... They should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Verse 28, Paul says, Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. It was a new era. The times of the Gentiles, and down to this day, the Temple Mount in Jerusalem remains in the hands of unbelievers, and a Muslim mosque and a Muslim shrine sit where the temple used to smolder. And down to this day, the Lord is adding to the number of his church, calling out his elect from the Gentile nations of the world. And so that we would know that time and judgment are in the hands of Christ. He has told us what was going to come before it happened. His word is sure. His promises are true, and that gives us hope for what is yet to come. And so beginning in verse 25, Jesus shifts his focus from the destruction of God's city to the redemption of God's people. This is our second point, the redemption of God's people. Now, the first thing you notice when you look here is how much greater this day will be than the day in which the temple was destroyed. And here's where we need to pay very close attention to the text. In verses 20 to 24, Jesus was describing something that was limited and something that was localized. He spoke of armies gathered together in a particular place. He spoke of destruction that could be escaped If only you could make your way out of the city, you could flee. In verse 23, where our ESV uh, mentions distress upon the earth, most other modern translations, including the King James, most other modern translations translate that word as land, as in specifically upon the land of Israel. And that's fitting because in the next phrase, Jesus couples distress upon the land with wrath that is coming against this people, against a particular people, against the same people who rejected Christ at his triumphal entry, against the same people who said that they would have his righteous blood be upon their heads and the heads of their children. You see the language there. Verses 20 to 24 describing a cataclysmic event in the history of a single nation. It is a destructive force that is extinguished as soon as the city is consumed. In fact, even the signs that lead up to that uh, are, in a sense, limited and localized and and relatively contained. Look back to verse 10. Then he said to them, nation, that's singular, by the way, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. This is talking about a conflict between two nations, one against the other. 
Verse 11, there will be great earthquakes in various places, famines and pestilences, and there will be terrors and great signs from heavens. Now, even that last part there, the description of signs from heaven is pale compared to what Jesus says is going to occur before the coming of the Son of Man. Beginning in verse 25, Christ warns of signs in the sun and moon and stars. All the lights that that mark the seasons, all those powers of the heavens that guide the people upon the earth are going to be affected. The churning of the seas will create an inescapable roar. The power of the heavens, he says, will be shaken. It's reminiscent of the language of the prophets again. The way that they describe that great and terrible day of the Lord. Listen to Joel chapter 2, verse 30 and 31. The Lord said, and I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Now, it's true that that language, that celestial language, the shaking of the powers of the heavens and the moon turned to blood, it's true that the prophets sometimes use those uh, images in a metaphorical way. It's true that speaking of the powers of heaven being shaken, Jesus himself might have been speaking of political powers turned upside down. He could have been describing the disruption of world orders. But even if that language is metaphorical, he still applies it far more widely than the events that accompany the first fall, the first day, the fall of Jerusalem. Again, verse 11, then... In that first day, the famines and pestilences occurred, it says, in various places. And then, verse 23, the distress again came upon the land. The wrath fell upon this people. But when Christ returns in glory, it's going to be different. Verse 25, he says that the nations, there it's plural, the nations will be in perplexity. He promises in verse 26 that the people will faint with fear and foreboding for what is coming upon the world. That word for world is ukamene. It's the same word that we use to get our our word ecumenical. It means everybody all together at the same time. Jesus is talking here in the second portion about something that's going to come upon the entire world. The whole world will experience it. That's what he says in verse 35. It will come upon all who dwell upon the face of the whole earth. And then, says Jesus in verse 27, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. It's different from the fall of Jerusalem, but it's far greater. Then they will see the coming of the Son of Man. Then they will see the rider on the white horse, faithful and true, that John saw in his revelation. Then they will see the one who came in the humility of the manger return with the glory of his heavenly kingdom. Then they will see the Lord descend from heaven with a cry of command and the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And then they will see the beginning of another new era. The time when the Son of Man is presented to the Ancient of Days and the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdom of our God and of His Christ and He shall reign forever and ever. That is the day that Jesus is describing in these verses. And Jesus wants us to believe his word. 
He wants us to trust that it will happen just as he said that it would so that we will be prepared for his second coming. Because when Jesus returns in glory, he's going to come with a judgment and with a redemption that far outstrips anything the world has ever known. You know, the destruction that fell upon Jerusalem in 70 AD was unspeakably horrific. And yet, just as it happened with the Babylonians and, and those whom the Lord calls his instruments in the Old Testament and Isaiah, those Romans were instruments in God's hand. Uh, they were bringing a judgment that was a picture in miniature of what is to come at the last day. Think about how much greater will be the judgment when Christ returns. In Jerusalem, the people could have been safe if only they could make it to the hills. In the day when Christ returns, the people will cry to the mountains and the hills to fall on them and cover, cover them, but there will be no escape. In Jerusalem, God's vengeance came upon those who rejected Christ in his earthly ministry in Israel. And when Christ returns, Again, the wrath of God will be revealed from heaven against all ungodliness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. In Jerusalem, the fires of God's judgment burned for a time. When Christ returns, he'll thresh the world like wheat and his righteous ones will be gathered to him and the unrighteous chaff will be burned with unquenchable fire. When Christ returns, he will bring his judgment with him. And those who reject now the visitation of his gospel will receive the judgment in full that Jerusalem received only in part. And Lord willing, next week we'll see more of that warning to be ready. Lest, Jesus says, verse 34, that that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. He wants his people to be ready for the judgment. But this message really isn't a warning, is it? These verses that we're reading, and especially into verse 28, this is not about judgment. This is not about judgment coming against the unrighteous. This is about redemption coming for God's people, and that too will be far greater. Christ will return in power of judgment, but he's also going to return in the glory of redemption. And the day of Christ's glory is not a day of darkness or of gloom for those who are trusting in his salvation. That day will be the greatest day that has ever occurred. It will be a day of rejoicing and a day of gladness. It will be a day of casting off all of those sins that we can't seem to shake in this life. It will be a day of receiving new and renewed and glorious bodies just like his renewed, resurrected, glorious body. It'll be the day when believers are made like him and when we see him as he is, without the limitations of our mortal minds, without the cloud of all of our nagging doubts, it'll be the day when faith is made sight and we will see the face of him for whom our souls have longed. It'll be the day when the saints of God enter into their eternal rest in Jesus. So unlike the command in verse 21 to flee from God's wrath when these things happen, Jesus tells his disciples to look up. Verse 28. Now when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. 
We don't know when it's going to happen. These verses aren't here to give us a timetable uh, of the eschaton, but they're here so that we would draw our eyes upward, away from the things of this world that are passing away, and up to Christ, our coming Savior. It's the same as Paul's message to the Colossians. Chapter 3, beginning in verse 2. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ and God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. This life is not our home. This kingdom is not where our citizenship lies. And so look up, says the Apostle Paul. Look to the things that are above, not to the things that are on the earth. Look up, says our Savior. Raise your heads in confidence that all that the Lord has spoken, He will do. Your redemption is coming. Not in part, but the whole. The resurrection of the body and the life everlasting and the end of sin and shame. And so Christ says, look up. The day of Christ's glory is yet to come. But time and judgment and redemption are in the hand of our Savior. And so look up, dear Christian, and set your hope on what God has promised. Let's pray together. O Lord, our God, we thank you for the promise of Christ in his word and his coming again. We pray that you would give us hearts to long for that day, to trust in your word, to believe it. Oh Lord, dispel our doubts and set our minds and our hearts on you, set our wills on you, O oh Lord, that we should release our death grip on the things of this world that can do us no eternal good. Help us to cling to you, help us to trust in you, and to trust in what you have promised. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.